Sweet Jesus, again, thank you for this privilege to pray. Thank you for the privilege of fellowship and the time to study your word. I thank you that you want us to be saved more than we desire to be saved and are doing whatever it takes to make that a reality apart from crossing the threshold of our will. So I just pray that you would inform our wills again today to ensure that we will choose rightly and that we will choose a path of surrender and dependence in our experience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the answer to our deficiencies. Isn't that a cool picture? It's not mine. I stole it from the internet, but it looks cool. All right. We as believers wrestle with deficiencies. True or false? True. And we wrestle with inadequacies, and both of these can cripple us and make us feel unworthy of being saved. Is that true or false? We're not good enough. We're broken. We're a mess. And I believe the ministry of the Holy Spirit will give us some answers. Paul says in Romans 7, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. How much? Nothing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. That's the believer's experience for, for many, right? I want to do the right thing. I just don't know how. And when I tried to do the right thing, I failed. Who, and he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And someone may be thinking like, that's what I said in my prayer last night. Were you in my bedroom? No, uh, Paul was very acquainted with our experience. Romans 7, 18 and 24. The answer to Paul's question, I believe, is explained in Romans chapter 8. And I believe a lot of controversy in the church and a lot of discouragement in our members could be settled with an understanding of the Bible's teaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit laid out in Romans 8 and elsewhere. So that's what we're going to be doing this evening, not this morning. Okay, first of all, there's some current debate happening in the church regarding the nature of the Holy Spirit. I say currently, Uriah Smith never really accepted that Holy Spirit is being a person, so it's not a new thing necessarily, but it's kind of coming back that there are people who are actually doubting the validity of the Trinity, and not just in an anti-Trinitarian sense, it's actually a different species, because they're not saying that Jesus isn't God, they're saying that Jesus is God but had a beginning. Yeah, he's begotten, which actually means the unique, not necessarily only something that was created. It's a whole other story. I'm not going to go into that. I don't have time for that. But I will say this. Jesus, and they also say that the Holy Spirit is not a person, to my best understanding of what they believe, and that the, the comforter is actually Jesus himself. They take some white quotes out of context and so forth. Here's the thing. Jesus, in all four of these references, refers to the Holy Spirit as a person. Here's why this, this matters, by the way, and here's a really good response to some of the, what's going on with this situation. The Gospel of John was the last book written in the Bible, not Revelation. It was the Gospel of John. Chronologically, it was the last one that was written. There were some heresies beginning to come into the church and some rumors happening that some people were denying that Jesus was actually human, that he was just a divine being that came along and did his thing and wasn't really affected by human things. Others were denying the divinity of Jesus. Some issues were going on regarding the, the nature of Christ, his actual what, divine, not divine. Some of these things were starting to happen. And John is looking. He's the last living apostle at this stage. When he dies, no one will be alive who knew Jesus personally. This is a problem because now everything that people are going to believe about Jesus is based upon not people who knew Jesus directly, but people who knew Jesus who knew Jesus directly. And it kind of goes long, kind of like the telephone game, right? Sometimes this can go haywire. So John is looking at the landscape. He's looking at what has been written to the church at this stage, 
and he knows all of what's been available to the church when it comes to the writings of the New Testament. And John ends up including things in his gospel and makes some pretty strong emphasis. I didn't go to college. Is that a word? Emphasi? What do you? Emphases. Sure. Why not? So he makes an emphasis on some topics to kind of shore up what's missing in the Christian literature at this stage. And he ends up including a very long dialogue, nearly an uninterrupted monologue by Jesus. It's in John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. This narrative you don't find anywhere else. Now I, according to my studies, believe that a lot of these things are alluded to in Ephesians, but they're not explicitly quoted. And John, having access to Ephesians, John being the pastor of Ephesus, actually, at one stage when he got off the island of Patmos, I believe that he included this because there's a whole lot of stuff in John 13 through 17 about the love of God, about the Holy Spirit being a person, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, and his whole gospel basically is about the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is indeed divine, Jesus is the powerful creator, and that the Holy Spirit is a person, and he highlights the love of God. So he's supplying what he may feel to be lacking to some degree in the literature to ensure that what the next generation of Christians need to know, they will know. Does that make sense? Well, how does John start that gospel? In the beginning, not the beginning of the world, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Everything that was created, according to John, in his recollection of what went on, and he was close to Jesus, was made by Jesus. Well, if Jesus was made, did Jesus make Jesus? And He was in the beginning with the Father. And just look throughout the Gospel of John. I think there's a lot of cues there that was intentionally given to the church for a time such as this. So anyway, that's not part of this message necessarily, but that is going on. Um, The Theological Seminary just released a series of videos. If you message me on Facebook or email me, and Pastor Joe has my email, they just released a series of videos buttressing our view of the Trinity from a bunch of different uh, professors at seminary that is actually a good resource. And Ministry Magazine just released an article on what Ellen White believed about the personhood of the Holy Spirit. It was a very good article as well. So our church is starting to release resources to fill this in. I think Norman McNulty may have dealt with this in Audioverse. I know another series in Audioverse was released. So, no, it's a guy from Australia, I think, that did some presentations. Anyway, talk to me afterwards. I'll, I'll send you some more resources. But that is something that's happening in our church. And since I'm dealing with the topic of the Holy Spirit, Jesus alluded multiple times to the personhood of the Holy Spirit and someone separate than Him. So I'm just going to go with that assumption the rest of the message. So according to Jesus' understanding of the nature of the Holy Spirit, He had personality. He filled the role that a person left. He also mentioned these things in the most important discourse He gives the disciples before He leaves earth, John 13 to 17, right? You tell all the important stuff to the babysitter right before you leave. If Bobby swallows a penny, call this phone number. I'll be here from this time to this time. Jesus, in His most important discourse, deals with this very stuff. He also says that He wants you in heaven, by the way. He says, Father, I desire that they might be with me where I am. That's good news. Jesus wants you in heaven. And He prayed for you. Did you know that? And that's found in John 17. So, There are some in our ranks who've begun to question the role and divinity of the Holy Spirit. Uriah Smith and other pioneers wrestled with this as well. Some people will hand you these old, ridiculously lame-looking books 
that looked like they were printed in the 90s on DOS. Like, if you're going to print heretical material, at least make it look good. Um, but they'll, they'll, they'll share all these quotes from our Adventist pioneers who at that stage did not believe in the Trinity. They were Unitarians, some of them. Problem is, they didn't end that way, most of them. Those were just early quotes. They'll say that Ellen White believed in this, which isn't true, just a bunch of foolishness. But anyway, all that being said, uh, this is not a new debate within our church. But to refute the personhood of the Holy Spirit is to claim to know more about the nature of the Holy Spirit than did Jesus. And I would caution anyone on that route to cease and desist because it's a deification of our own ideas and surmising, and it's a form of idolatry. If you're claiming to know more about the Holy Spirit than Jesus did, take off your shoes. And we'll leave it at that. Now, it is not essential, this is from Ellen White, actually, I think, on this topic. Yeah, it is, Acts of the Apostles. She says, it's not essential for us to be able to define just what the Holy Spirit is. Christ tells us that the Spirit is the Comforter. Wait a minute. Those people are saying that Ellen White said that Jesus is the Comforter, but she's saying that Jesus said the Holy Spirit is the Comforter. The Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father. It is plainly declared regarding the Holy Spirit that in his work of guiding men into all truth, he shall not speak of himself. The nature of the Holy Spirit is a mystery. Men cannot explain it because the Lord has not revealed it to them. Men having fanciful views may bring together passages of Scripture and put a human construction on them. But the acceptance of these views will not strengthen the church. Regarding such mysteries, which are too deep for human understanding, what does she say? Silence is golden. I digress. Now, there are three primary roles of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the Scriptures, according to John chapter 16. Actually, more than that. To convict, to confirm, and to conform. We're going to walk through those briefly and then go into some other topics. So, the first is to convict. In John chapter 16, verses 8 to 11, Jesus says... We should turn there. I'm doing a lot of memory verses today. Let's turn there so you can see it. John chapter 16, beginning of verse 8. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 8. This is what Jesus says himself about the Holy Spirit. And when he, referring to it as a person, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment, because the ruler of this world is now judged. So, one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit exists in his first ministry is to find people, even people outside of God, to awaken to the fact that you got stuff that you need to bring to Jesus, that you've not done rightly, that you don't, you're not living a righteous life, that you sinned, and that there is a judgment, right? And that Satan himself is going to be judged. So the Holy Spirit's first work is to convict the world of its unbelief, of its sin of unbelief, its need of Christ's righteousness, and that Satan has been judged. Then, after he convicts us of this, and the whole reason of this conviction is not to discourage us, but to point us to Jesus, the one who died for our wrongdoing. This is very practical. This is very pragmatic. This is very good, yeah? Because if you're outside of Jesus, and you need Jesus, but don't realize it, he comes and tells you so forth. He tells you as much, basically. Okay? Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, says this, In him, in Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. 
Paul sometimes does this thing. He uses pronouns and you have no idea who he's talking about. You have to go up like 15 paragraphs to find who it is. So I just supply them when I preached for time's sake. In Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So when you believed in Jesus, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. So you hear the gospel, you believe in Jesus, you trust in Christ, and then you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, according to this verse, who, meaning the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. So, you hear the gospel, you believe and trust in Jesus, and then you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not once saved, always saved. But it is saying that from the time that you accept Jesus until the second coming, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee or the down payment, if you will, of your salvation. He's basically testifying in heaven that this is a child of God. Now, all of this is dependent upon whether you walk in this decision or not. If you walk away from this decision, the process starts all over again. Are you with me? So if we're continuing to yield and to surrender to the Spirit when we're prompted and when we're convicted, this process continues, okay? This ceiling serves as a guarantee or a down payment. And I'm sure people in this room have had to do this, right? Whenever you buy a vehicle or a house, some large ticket item, that you put money down, and, and what you're basically saying is, I'm good for this. I'm telling you right now, by putting money down, I'm coming back for this thing, and I'm going to seal the deal. That's basically what Jesus is affording, that the Holy Spirit is testifying until Jesus comes back to seal the deal. The Spirit is acting as that guarantee, testifying in heaven that our status in heaven is one who is saved. And we'll read another verse that alludes to this in just a moment. So from the moment you say yes to Jesus, the Spirit is testifying in heaven that heaven is now your home until Jesus comes to seal the deal of the second coming. But again, the huge disclaimer is this is not teaching once saved, always saved. This is all dependent upon us walking in that decision to accept Jesus and to follow the promptings of His Spirit. If you turn away, the process begins again. doesn't mean you can never come back. It just starts again, right? If you drop out of school, you got to re-enroll. It's no different. So this ceiling in Ephesians 1 is what is referred to as imputed righteousness and justification, what we alluded to this morning in divine service. And basically, you receive your diploma when you say yes to Jesus. The second coming is when your schooling ends, right? If you're alive then, when you die, then it ends then. But day by day, you're receiving instruction and growth, right? You're being supplied skills you didn't have before, gifts you didn't have before, righteousness you didn't have before, and so forth. But you receive that diploma on day one. If you drop out of school, they take it back. And you need to come back. And when you say yes to Jesus again, process starts again. You get the diploma, then the schooling starts. Does that make sense? That's how this process works. So, impute means to attribute something like righteousness or guilt to someone by a virtue of a similar quality in somebody else. So it's to account to me what someone else did. So when you have imputed righteousness, that means that the righteousness that you received wasn't yours. You didn't create it. You didn't earn it. It was given you by somebody else who did earn it. Does that make sense? Justification is the act of declaring or making something righteous in the sight of God. So both of these transpire at conversion. When someone says yes to Jesus, makes a genuine decision for Christ, makes a complete surrender to Christ, that's how this process begins. And again, we read this quote earlier, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. 
The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? This third seminar is a little more nerdy than the others. It's more teaching than it is preaching and so forth. So just gird thyself. Okay, so that's the first aspect of him confirming that you're a child of God. A second aspect is referred to in Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. This is what I talked about in divine service, but butchered it when I was trying to quote it in my head. Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 14. So the first aspect of us being confirmed as a child of God, so we're convicted before we're in Christ. He brings us to Jesus. We say yes to Jesus. We're sealed by the Spirit until the second coming, assuming we walk in that decision. That's the first confirmation, act of confirmation. But here's the second, and it uses even more endearing language. Romans 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So you're not under the tyranny of some slave owner in this sense, right? Now, yes, there are allusions to slavery in the New Testament in a positive sense, because slavery in, in the Bible at times was something that people actually chose to provide for their well-beings as opposed to being oppressed, right? There's different ways in which this went down at certain times. But so, like there's instances where a, a person could willfully decide to stay in the master's house because they liked them. They took good care of them. They were part of the family. And they had a child under his care and wanted to stay with the wife and have the kids. And they'd commit them to the family you know, for good. That's no problem. That's not what we're talking about here. But here's the point. That you didn't receive a spirit of bondage again to fear. Most of us feel like our Christian experience is that, bondage and fear. Paul says that's not what your experience should be. It should be like being adopted into a warm, fuzzy, nice family, yeah? He says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's Daddy. It's this endearing term. And then he says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, not will be, when we get things right and we obey perfectly. You understand the difference? He views us as child of God as we're learning to be children of God. Does that make sense? And we'll explain that more in the third phase of the Holy Spirit. But we current tense are children of God. The Holy Spirit is testifying in heaven that that's the case. That's good news for you. When you accept Jesus, that's immediately what happens. You get adopted. But here's the thing. When you're adopted into a new family... The Spirit then teaches how to live like a child of God. This is the third phase. But when someone is adopted into a family, how much do they know regarding the expectations of the family that they're joining? They don't know anything. Never been there before. We don't know how to live like a child of God when we come to Jesus, which is why the Ark of the Covenant is not at the beginning of the sanctuary. It's at the end of the sanctuary, right? It's the completion of God's work in you. That's always the goal, and parts of that are becoming a reality every step of the way. But that's not what it starts with. You understanding the difference? We're not saying the commandments never become part of the believer's experience, but the first thing you encounter is the cross. Immediately, you become a child of God, and then he begins a process of making you into that child of God. Does that make sense? You don't know how. The sanctuary service was meant to teach you how to live like a child of God. You surrender to the will of God. You accept Jesus as your Savior. You're baptized as a public declaration. You join the church of God. And then he begins to teach you how to live like a child of God in the holy place. 
how to grow in, into a Christ-like character by studying the Word of God, how to pray like Jesus and interceding for the people around you, and how to be a Christian witness, how to invest in people for the good of the kingdom of heaven. The sanctuary is all over this, and that's good. That's good news. So this is what makes the third ministry of the Holy Spirit so amazing, is that we get a tutor. We get a, a I don't want to say schoolmaster because then you start talking about Galatians and stuff. But you, you end up getting this, this hands-on personal assistant to aid you and make you into what you need to be once you enter the holy place in this experience. So to conform, the third act of the Holy Spirit is to teach you how to live like a child of God because you don't know how. Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 3. Are you seeing that there's this logical, linear experience for the believer, right? You start in the, the, the gate, you confess your sin, you meet your crucified Lord, you meet at the foot of the cross, you're baptized, and then you enter a new experience, right? You enter a holy place experience, if you will. Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 3. For the law could not do, and it was weak in the flesh, meaning save us, because your flesh can't keep the law, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He overcame sin in the flesh. Why? So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So when you say yes to Jesus, because Jesus overcame in human flesh, he did this so that you could overcome in human flesh and that the commandments will become a part of your experience. But he's the one that does that, not you. He's the one that makes it a reality. Commandment keeping is a consequence, right? Not a cause of salvation. It's a consequence of salvation, not a cause of salvation. So, uh, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Here's why. Because the carnal mind is an enmity against God, hatred, and isn't subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Whenever you're living a me, 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 me experience, you can't please God that way. When you don't take responsibility for your sin, you can't please God that way. And even as a believer, if you're trying to do everything in your own strength, that's not pleasing God either because you're missing the point, right? God is wanting to supply strength for you to obey, not asking you to obey on your own because you actually can't, right? At least not the obedience that God is looking for. So the law could not save us because our flesh is incapable of keeping it. So God sent Jesus and flesh like ours to overcome sin in the flesh. Jesus had to be like us. Jesus had to be capable of falling. Jesus had to have a post-fall nature that was capable of falling. That's, that's what was necessary. Now, Paul said that Jesus did this so the law could be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit by a continual dependence upon strength from God and continually surrendering to God. He was continually dependent and continually surrendered every step of the way, okay? And that's how we can find the same strength. This same thing is alluded to in Hebrews 10. In Hebrews twice, the new covenant is mentioned, or Jeremiah 31 is quoted. I'll phrase it that way. Paul quotes Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, twice in Hebrews, in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. We did Hebrews 8 this afternoon. Now we're going to do Hebrews 10, beginning of verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of sin, there is no longer an offering for sin. 
So God promises to write his law in our hearts and in our minds, and he also promises to remember our sins no more. This is, again, part of that work of the Holy Spirit testifying that these things are the case, making them a reality. The Holy Spirit is the means through which God does that recreative work inside of us. Does that make sense? So this is the second time I just mentioned that. Um, and this is the passage in the New Covenant, which again, many in Christendom are talking about the New Covenant, but I think they're wholly misguided. The New Covenant isn't about the Ten Commandments no longer being valid. It's actually even more prevalent. The law is more prevalent in the believer's experience in the New Covenant than it was in the Old Covenant. Not less prevalent, right? I digress. So the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and unbelief and then seals us when we do believe, thereby confirming that we are children of God and that heaven is our home. Then he begins to teach us how to live like children of God in the holy place by writing his law in our hearts and in our minds. And when that process finishes, we enter the most holy place, right? We look just like Jesus. Ezekiel 36, we already covered this earlier in the last seminar, so I'll, I'll not really reread that, but it's God's extravagant promise to transform our lives through the work of His Spirit. He says, I'll bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean because we're a filthy mess. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and then I'll put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And then He says, and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's a promise. He knows that if the Spirit of God is living in your experience, you will obey. Not I hope I can get it right. Like if you continue to follow the promptings of the Spirit, if you're continually surrendered to God and depending upon God, you will obey. That's the promise. So you're dirty, I'll cleanse you. You got idols, I can get rid of them. You got a stony heart, I'll give you a new one. You're cold and indifferent, I'll help you to be able to feel again. You can't obey, I'll empower you to obey. This is the beautiful promise of God. So by accepting the gospel, this now grants the Holy Spirit access to begin His work of sealing us and transforming us into Christ's image. He immediately imputes Christ's righteousness to us, thereby justifying us before the Father. You with me so far? Then He begins the process of imparting Christ's righteousness to us by empowering us to receive and to live Christ's perfect life. This is why Romans 10 said that we not only needed the death of Jesus, we also needed the life of Jesus. Yeah? So this is sanctification. Every step of the way, we can stand justified before the Father if we continue to follow the prompting to the Spirit. And if you mess up, repent and come back. So the righteousness by which we are justified, this is again from the Review and Herald, June 4, 1895. The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. So this is what she says in Christ's Object Lessons. This is a beautiful analogy. The germination of the seed represents the beginning of the spiritual life whenever Christ is talking about seeds and sowing. She says the germination of the seed represents the beginning of the spiritual life, and the development of the plant is a beautiful figure of Christian growth. As in nature, so in grace, there can be no life without growth. James says it this way, faith without works is dead. It's not faith at all, right? The plant must either grow or die. As its growth is silent and imperceptible but continuous, so is the development of the Christian life. This is why when you start a devotional life, don't assume that you're going to be the Apostle Paul standing before Nero in a week, Right? It's, it's, it's small and imperceptible what's happening. The way I explain it to people when they're first developing a, dev a devotional life 
is an imagine you've got a huge block of marble and you have a hammer and a chisel. Every time that you choose to commune with Christ in the morning and, and give him the first part of your day, you're basically lifting the chisel and the hammer and you're taking one knock off of that block and you set the hammer down. Now, if you just look at it at the end of the day, you think, this isn't doing me any good. This is never going to be anything. But if you just keep going and keep doing what needs to be done, you're going to find that some time goes by and you look at the thing and you think, you know, this, this could maybe become something. It's small and imperceptible, but it's making an eternal difference. Do not despise the day of small things, we're told. Keep trusting the process. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Keep trusting that he who began a good work in you will see it through. Amen? Don't give up because you're not seeing Fort Knox built in a day. Keep going. Keep taking Knox off of that block, and I promise you, God will do what he said he would do. The word is doing more than you realize. Right? They talk about this bamboo. It's in Japan, I think, or China or somewhere. And you have to water this thing every single day for five straight years. If you miss a day, it's going to die. Five straight years, you get nothing. Like this little shoot comes out and it just stays there, laughing at your face for five years. But then in the span of six weeks, it grows to be 90 feet tall. Six weeks, 90 feet. I think that's right. Ask Mr. Google, he'll tell you. But here's the point. All the while, when you thought nothing was happening, a root structure was being developed to handle such a strong structure. Small and imperceptible, but having a huge difference. Praise the Lord Jesus for this. Don't give up on the process, y'all. Stay focused on Jesus, okay? So she says, as its growth is silent and imperceptible, but continuous, so was the development of the Christian life. At every stage of development, our life may be perfect. This is such good news because we're, the problem is we have a lot of light as a church and we know what end time righteousness needs to look like, don't we? And we may hear a lot about that from present truth preachers, but here's the problem. If we're not explaining the process to people, we're just explaining what we need to look like at the end of the process, people are going to look themselves in the mirror and say, I'm a loser. And we wrestle because... This is what God wants at the end of time for me to be saved. But the Bible says, if I confess Jesus, I'm saved. But that's what I need to be at the end of time. And I'm not that, and that's what I need to be to be saved then. But I'm not that now. Am I, am I even saved now? You know what I'm talking about? You ever had this internal dissonance and not knowing where you are with Jesus? What you need to be then may not be what you need to be now. In fact, what you are now is part of the process in making you into who you will be then. Does that make sense? So for you to say, you know, I'm just a stalk with an itty-bitty little ear because I haven't fully grown yet, to assume that you're a worthless plant would be unreasonable because you're where you should be at this stage in development, and you will be that, but you're not now. And this is why she says you can be perfect at every stage of development. So for you to curse a little sproutling because it's not a, it doesn't have full ears of corn would be ridiculous. In fact... You think that perfection looks like the corn with the full stock. That's not true. You can actually be perfect at every stage of development. That's what it says here. At every stage of development, our life may be perfect. Yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be what? Continual advancement. Don't despise a day of small things. Don't give up on the process. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep following Jesus. As our opportunities multiply, our experience will enlarge and our knowledge increase. 
We should become strong to bear responsibility. Remember, that little stock couldn't handle a full ear of corn. It's not strong enough yet, but it will be. And what's happening today will make it into that if it stays in the soil, if it keeps trusting the process. And our maturity will be in proportion to our privileges. Basically, what we respond to whenever we're, we're convicted will grow to that much potential. Every time you respond, your growth gets bigger, right? That's your potential. Romans chapter 5, 8 to 10. I covered this earlier, but Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we should be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by what? His life. So Jesus' death cancels out our debt. As we mentioned before, Jesus' life gives us our fitness for heaven. That's good news. So if all I had was the death of Jesus, I would have no hope for eternal life. And this is where our evangelical brethren don't see the whole picture. Because someone canceled out my debt. Yes, that was achieved at the cross. But the thing is, I have a high priest in heaven right now attributing to me, imparting to me the righteousness of Christ from the sanctuary. He's making this a reality for me. I need not only a lamb, I also need a priest. I need both. And right now in heaven, that priest is mediating for me and preparing me to stand then. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 5. So we need both. We need a lamb and a priest. My past debt would be cleared, but I'd have no hope of living a victorious life going forward. Without a high priest doing work right now, we would have no hope of a righteous life, right? Of living a sinful life. So God does desire us to live lives that are free from sin, and He does intend for us to overcome. If he didn't, then why did he send Jesus to suffer, to overcome, to die, and to rise again? Was he just showing off? Right? Of course he wants this for us. So, he's provided the means necessary for us to overcome by sending Jesus to live a perfect life that we have not lived and empowering us to live Christ's life through his spirit. Okay? Now, how does that happen? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and beginning in verse 12. This is becoming one of my favorite presentations, by the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning of verse 12. We talked about this in Sabbath school. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed. Why? Lest he fall. So self-righteousness, all the Lord has said, I will do, is a precarious ground to be upon, isn't it? When you lose sight of your need of Jesus at any stage in your experience, you are on dangerous territory and you're asking for trouble. There's never a day in your Christian experience where you don't need Jesus. Never. You continually need that priest working in your life. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning of verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Why? Because no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. This is good news for anyone wrestling. Because sometimes what Satan does is he isolates us with shame. I'm a dirty loser. No one knows what I'm going through. If anybody knew what it was like to be me, they wouldn't like me anymore. But when you realize that other people suffer in the same way and wrestle with the same stuff, you all of a sudden feel human. You ever been there? Like you find out someone else has had that same bad, you're like, oh man, really? Like I thought I was, I couldn't talk to anybody about this. You know how liberating it is to talk to someone who's wrestled with the same thing 
and how inspiring it is to hear from that same person that Jesus gave them victory? We need that. So Paul tells us that others have gone through the same thing, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it or overcome it or endure it. This is such good news because this text is literally saying that every time that you're tempted to sin, the Spirit of Jesus is beside you telling you there's another way. And I can look back at every time I've fallen in the last five years and tell you it was just that. God said, you could do this. And I said, yeah, but I will not have this man as Lord over me. Give me Barabbas. Yeah? But there's always a way out, which tells me there's never a time in which you have to sin. Meaning it's not just inevitable. It's just something I have to do because anytime I'm tempted, I always fall. Every single time we're tempted, according to 1 Corinthians 10, Jesus has made a way of escape for us. The question is, what will you do when the Spirit taps you on the shoulder in that moment? And the thing that informs your will, your decision-making ability, is your picture of Jesus and of God the Father. And if your picture is ugly, you're just going to be self-condemned and you're just going to say, uh, whatever. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't even think I am saved. And you just go through with it. But if you realize the faith of Jesus in your experience, it will awaken a faith in Jesus to ask him to set you free in that moment and ask for the strength for his surrendered will, for his surrendered heart, his spirit of surrender to make the right decision in that moment. Does that make sense? Jesus isn't asking you to create some surrender. He's asking you to receive his surrender. You can ask for that in that moment. Philippians 2.13 alludes to something very similar. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. If you went to Colossians, take a U-turn. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. The Bible says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do. <clears throat> he's actually the one that awakens a desire within you to do right, and he's the one that gives you power to do it. That's such good news. So when we're tempted, we're to ask for Christ's spirit of surrender to the will of God, who then enables our will to carry out God's will. And this is going back to another analogy here in Christ's Object Lessons. <clears throat> the plant grows by receiving that which God has provided to sustain its life. Notice, it doesn't provide this for itself. There's this sense of dependence, right? It can't create what it needs. The plant grows by receiving that which God has provided to sustain its life. It sends down its roots into the earth. It drinks in sunshine, the dew and the rain. It receives the life-giving properties from the air. So the Christian is to grow by cooperating with the divine agencies. Feeling our helplessness, we are to improve all opportunities granted us to gain a fuller experience. As the plant takes root in the soil, so are we to take deep root in what? In Christ. As the plant receives the sunshine, the dew, and the rain, we are to open our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The work is to be done not by might, nor by power, but by what? By my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4 and verse 6. So if we keep our minds stayed upon Christ, she says, He will come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain unto the earth. Hosea 6.3. As the son of righteousness, he will arise upon us with healing in his wings, Malachi 4.2, and we shall grow as the lily, we shall revive as the corn and grow as the wine, Hosea 14.5 and 7. 
By constantly relying upon Christ as our personal Savior, we shall grow up into Him in all things who is our head. When you are completely dependent upon Jesus in every aspect, He's everything you need for growth, you will grow. Guaranteed. So the Holy Spirit allows us to receive everything that Christ achieved and overcame on our behalf. And we can cry out to God in any moment of need to receive from God what Christ already procured and earned. Does that make sense? Christ continually yielded his will to his Father. He continually abided in God. And we can receive that spirit of surrender. He's not asking us to create it. You can receive that. You can say, Jesus, I thank you that I can receive your spirit of surrender in this moment of temptation and that I don't have to make that decision. Now, Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 this is cool. Romans 8, verse 11. This actually alludes to what we covered in Ezekiel 37 in our second seminar. Romans 8, 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Remember, you got deficiencies, the Holy Spirit is your answer. We don't worship the Spirit. We don't talk to the Spirit. We plead with God and with Jesus, but we receive the Spirit. Yeah? So Romans 8, verse 32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with Jesus also freely give us all things? Let I me mean, just think about this, guys. If God is going to send Jesus to pay for the sins of humanity... Do you think he's going to, you know, turn into a tight wad on you whenever you really need him the most with graces from heaven to succeed over sin? Right? If he's willing to give Jesus, you better believe he's going to give any other grace needed for us to be saved and for us to live a holy and righteous life. Yeah? If God didn't hold anything back but was willing to give all of heaven in one gift, why wouldn't he supply what is needed in our experience? Romans 8 verse 26 says this, for the Holy Spirit helps. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession. Even if you don't know how to pray, he says you'll supply that. Are you seeing how desperately God wants you to be saved? I remember when I first started to realize some of these things, I thought, well, what's left for me to do? Like, Jesus dying for me is awesome, but do you see how much the kingdom of heaven is looking to do to see you saved? We have zero excuse before God. Jesus tells this parable, these people who are coming to a wedding feast, and they offered a robe to everybody. And this guy shows up to the feast and says, and, and, and the guy meets him at the feast and says, where's your robe, man? And the text says he was speechless. Come judgment day, if we have spurned the grace of Christ, we're going to be speechless. Because God is going to say, as he did in Isaiah chapter 5, whenever he does all this work to prepare the vineyard to put out good fruit, he says, what more could I have done that I've not done for you? The people who are lost at the end of time is not because God didn't make ample provision for their salvation. It's because they didn't value what he offered them. God, in the end of time, turns people over to the desires of their hearts. So the people who are lost, it's not because God didn't want them there. It's that God had so much respect for them and their power of choice that he's giving them what they want in spite of what he wants. That's what the judgment is. God literally opens the book of life and says, okay, Joe, what have you decided? And he's going to give you that. Whatever you desire and long for here is what you're going to receive on that day. 
And this is why responding to the prompting of the Spirit now matters. Because He's the one that can make you will and do. But if you don't care about what God is offering you, and you don't want God, you don't want heaven, why would He bring you there? It would be hell for you. So when people had to receive the wrath of God, what they're really receiving at this stage is God turning them over to their own desires, which lead to destruction. So what happened to the Israelites, whenever they refused to honor God, they were turned over to their desires. The people in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were turned over to their desires, and they received the fruit of that desire, which is destruction. But he doesn't want it. He says, I have no desire, in the, I have no delight in the destruction of the wicked. But then they would turn, he says, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Yeah? So, even if we don't know how to pray, God's willing to provide that too. Every deficiency in our experience has been accounted for in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The question then is, what will we do with the pleading of Jesus through His Spirit? That's the question. Will you say yay or nay? Will you say, we want Jesus to be ruler over us or we want Barabbas? That's the decision we have to make. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 is a familiar verse for us. The evangelists use it a lot, but here's the deal. There's this nuance in the original language that you don't hear a lot. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. How is it that Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts? In Romans, or Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, and only reading verse 20 for that matter, we use this text a lot. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Here's the thing. First of all, this door has no handle on the outside. None. And Jesus doesn't operate like the SWAT team where they kick the door down, put a bag over your head, throw you in an unmarked van, and take you to some place, right? He doesn't work that way. He only works by invitation. So he knocks on the door of our hearts, but our power of choice, our act of the will, is in opening the door is in surrendering to the process and choosing to give Jesus access to places that we would rather Jesus not have access in our flesh. And that act of the will is difficult. But when you know who it is who's knocking, it makes it easier to open. Yeah? Here's the other thing, though. In the original language, when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, it's actually in the continuative in the Greek, which means that he has been knocking, he is knocking now, and he has no intention of not knocking later. So this is a picture of persistence and of love. So how is it then that Jesus knocks on the door of our hearts? It's through His Spirit. It's through conviction. It's through that prompting of the Spirit to do right when you're faced with that decision. But with the, with the temptation will make a way of escape, that's what it is. It's Jesus working through His Spirit, wooing us to Himself. So we are gods at every step of our growth according to the imputed and imparted righteousness of Jesus. And we can have assurance that we are in God and heaven bound when we remain in Christ. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 24 alludes to this. You should be pretty close to that because you're in Revelation. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him. You know what that really means? The only people who are able to keep the commandments are people who abide in Jesus. Not, if you keep the commandments, then you're abiding in Jesus. You understand the difference? Motives matter. And he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, 
by the Spirit whom He has given us. We can know we have a genuine experience of God because the Spirit is working in our lives. He says this again in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Right? The evidence, the grace of God in our lives. Now, this is again in Christ's object lessons. This robe woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ and His humanity write out a perfect character, and, is in, and this character He offers to impart to us. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64 and verse 6. Everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin. How much? Everything. But the Son of God was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. Sin is defined to be the transgression of the law. But Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. He said of Himself, I delight to do Thy will, O my God, yea, Thy law is within my heart. Psalm 40 and verse 8. When on earth He said to His disciples, I have kept my Father's commandments. John 15, 10. By His perfect obedience, He made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Amen. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with His heart. The will is merged in His will. The mind becomes one with His mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to Him, and we live His life. We begin to live the life of Jesus. This is what, he me what it means to be clothed with the garment of His righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us as He sees, not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but His own robe of righteousness, which is the perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. He who is trying to reach heaven by his own works in keeping the law is attempting an impossibility. Man cannot be saved without obedience, but his work should not be of himself. Christ should work in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. If a man could save himself by his own works, he might have something in himself in which to rejoice. The effort that man makes in his own... This is Review and Herald, July 1, 1890, by the way. The effort that man makes in his own strength to obtain salvation is represented by what? The offering of Cain. All that man can do without Christ is polluted with selfishness and sin, but that which is wrought through faith is acceptable to God. When we seek to gain heaven through the merits of Christ, the soul makes progress. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we may go on from strength, from victory to victory, for through Christ, the grace of God has worked out our complete salvation. And this is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So walking according to the Spirit is walking in continual obedience to the prompting of the Spirit. So of course, this would deliver us from any form of condemnation because we're walking in obedience. And since we're receiving Christ's Spirit of surrender, we're doing it, in Christ. Now, the end time ramifications for this. Here's where it gets difficult. We know that what God requires at the end of time looks like yay. Yeah? And the present truth preachers love to remind us of this. Here's the thing. I don't disagree with them that this is what Christ expects. I feel that a greater work can be done by some of these believers. I've met present truth preachers that love Jesus and preach the cross of Christ. And praise the Lord Jesus for them. But there are some who do this in such a way that it really sets our people up for failure because it leads them with the impression that I need to work harder. 
that I need to dig my heels in. I need to pick myself up by my bootstraps and I got to fix this. Like I got to start doing right. It starts with the wrong premise. I'm not capable of right. I desperately need the righteousness of Jesus is where it should start. Does that make sense? So what happens is when we uplift what God expects at the expense of how God enables us to do what he expects, it leads to two basic responses. I'm a loser. I'll never be good enough. Let's just call it off. Or two, God is unreasonable. Because we had those moments of sincerity in our experience where we wanted to do the right thing, and we tried and we failed, and we thought, wait a minute. If this is the way that God operates, I'm not interested. If he sets me up for failure, why bother? This is where we hurt our people if we don't tell them about the process, not just where it ends. Does that make sense? I believe we're on the same page on where it ends for the most part. The problem is the process isn't explained, and so I need to be able to jump from here to where the carpet starts in the foyer. Yeah, but I can't do that. Yeah, but if you don't, you're going to be lost. Oh, man. Well, I'll try, and then I don't. I think, well, that's dumb. You know, I, I'm just not going to continue. Do you know how many Seventh-day Adventists have given up their faith because they don't understand what we've been talking about today? Do you know how many Seventh-day Adventists are miserable right now because they don't understand what we've been talking about today? And do you know how many Seventh-day Adventists are making their fellow Seventh-day Adventists and our visitors miserable because they don't understand what we've been talking about today? I have not downplayed obedience. I have not downplayed surrender. I have not downplayed the cost of sin, have I? But we've been uplifting Jesus, and we've been explaining that the process is a process that ends in success right? Don't give up the process. Don't stop looking to Jesus. If you fall, get back up, come to Jesus, and keep going. This is not the time to be giving up on Jesus. Paul says that seeing then that we have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, he says, let us hold fast our confession. Don't give up on Jesus. He says, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And you know what he says after that? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus understands your situation, because you have a sympathetic, not only sacrifice, a lamb, but also a priest, you then can come boldly to Jesus in the most holy place and beg for his righteousness, for his spirit of surrender, for his dependence, and you can find a victorious Christian experience. The Bible says so. And we also were told earlier that you can please God by believing his promises. And that he says, I will also allow the, the, the children of Israel to inquire of me to do this for them. You can ask for that today. If your experience has been all about you, all that the Lord has said, I will do, you can repent. You can come back and you can start the process all over again. If you've been laboring in your own strength, you can come to Jesus and you can find healing. Amen? That's good news today. Has this made sense has this been like too academic, too over your head, or has this been practical? You're all quiet. You're tired. Okay. I just want to make sure that I've made things clear, if I can clarify anything before we close. Um, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to close with a word of prayer, and then if there's any questions, I'll do my best. If I don't have answers, you know what I'm going to tell you? 
I don't know. But I'll look into it and we'll find out. So uh, would you stand with me? Let's pray together. God in heaven, I thank you for laying out before us what it is to be justified, sanctified, and what will lead to us in the end being glorified. I just pray that you would forgive us of our sins of self-dependence, of being religious nationalists, and depriving the people around us of the goodness of God because we haven't understood it ourselves or because we haven't recognized just how valuable everyone around us is and how desperately we ourselves need Jesus, that we're no better than anyone else. And I just pray, Lord, that you would set us free in every fashion so that we can be accurate mediums through which you can communicate to the world your undying love. Lord, I want to see the loud cry of Revelation 18 happen, and I want to see it soon. And I know you want it even more than I do, so I just pray that there would be a people who adequately reflect your character, who look like Jesus, who uplift Jesus, and who live the love of Jesus. This is our plea today, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.